Hello, Tom. Hello, Heron. How are you? Complex. <laughs> Very good. Thank Very you good. for the opportunity to say that. <laughs> I've, I've listened to some of our earlier recordings, and you did say complex, but I guess it just never occurred to me that this was your bit. Oh, yeah, it's my standard answer. <laughs> Very good. Very Anytime good. anybody asks me how I am, I say complex, and then that shuts most people up and they leave me alone. Mm. <laughs> you know, But some people find it intriguing, and we might even have an interesting conversation. Who knows? Mm. <laughs> I typically say fair to middling. Uh-huh. Which, uh, you know, because everyone wants to hear great or you yeah. know, right on yeah. or this kind oh, of thing. Oh, you say my parents just died. That's always a good one. Mm. That you know, and then they have to, you know. I haven't ever done anything like that, but actually, that's really great. Or just tell them, oh, just really shitty, you know, mm. terrible. Everything's fucking. My wife left me. I lost my job. Have you got ten bucks you can spare? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've had a few opportunities in my life to pull out some really crazy stuff. And <laughs> my wife's grandmother was killed. I don't think I've, I've, I mean, I, I came close on a couple of occasions, but you know. I, I really tried to avoid that whole epoch just because from there, you know, it never, once it becomes acceptable to do that kind of stuff, I'd just be using it all the time. I think that's <laughs> my concern. Well, see, you have to, see, you and I couldn't be from different universes. You, you deal with people all the time, don't you? Yeah, but I, as, as has been noted previously, in some circumstances, even some circumstances which are probably professionally volatile, sometimes I just let people have it. I, my view is that really? I've gotten to the position I'm in through a series of instincts that I don't have primary access to. And if one <laughs> of those instincts occasionally throws in a curveball, like, you know, some... Com but the thing with fair to middling is most people don't understand what fair to middling is. I mean, fair to middling is a joke in and of itself because what it says is you're giving two things which are vague and no one's ever sure whether fair is above middling or middling is above fair. <laughs> yeah, so, right, yeah. It's not bad, though. I don't know. <laughs> the thing is, fair to middling when used to describe... Because, I mean, when I, when I... For example, if I eat somewhere or if I encounter someone who I don't particularly like, I'll usually describe the experience as being fair to middling. It's a polite yeah. way of saying it sucked. Oh, ah, see, ah, okay. See, I would, I would, no. All right. I see what you're saying. Yeah. I see. I think this, this is a good linguistic point. There are, there are really four choices, not two. It's not either something is good or see. How's that? No, there's a better way to a better word for this. Um, you know, I need to write this out so that because I'm always confused when I want to tell this story about which which word to use. Mm. Uh, well, uh, like and uh, not like, for instance, people usually think you either like somebody or you don't like them. But actually, th there are there are two other distinctions. There's Merely not liking and not disliking and disliking. Dislike is the opposite of uh, of like, not don't like. Don't like is just merely the absence of liking. It doesn't imply anything else. Mm. Uh, and I dislike that person is quite clear. And I like that person is clear. But there's also, well, I don't dislike them. That's a sort of – and that's – it's better to – what I don't like them. Well, I'll say again, it, it, it takes a whole kind of different thinking because to us, don't like is a negative thing, but it's not. 
I mean, if you if you look at it logically, it's merely the absence of liking. I don't like Cher. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't even know her. So how could I? You know, I I don't like her. I don't dislike her either. Mm. But what about her ex-husband? How do you feel about him? Sonny? Oh, I ha- I hate his gut. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. At least we're clear on something here. Yeah, yeah. Very good. <laughs> well, yes. I guess the trees got him in the end, didn't they? So. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I still th- I think that's an important distinction because like like and don't like and dislike and don't dislike are really four very distinct things, and it can sometimes be really important uh, to make that distinction in precisely the situation you're bringing up. But I also think the whole notion of even even a quantifiable, somewhat one-dimensional space associated... I mean, I've had this experience this week. I went back and I spent some time with a whole bunch of former co-workers. Yeah, you were I looking realized, forward to this for a long time. <laughs> I was, I, it was, no, look, it was, it was absolutely fascinating. But while, while we're on the topic of, of linguistic distinction, while yeah. I was in my hotel room in Vegas, I was scrolling through Facebook, as you do, and my friend who's a linguist, who's a Harvard, and now I think she's a Cornell um, linguist, posted a, a thing associated with redundant place names. And I thought, oh, mm-hmm. yes, this is going to be interesting. Yeah. Because this, what caught me immediately and uh, was that they were place names where the name that they were related to, either like east or west or north or south, one of them had disappeared. So you only had like north something and there was no longer a south something and yeah. i thought to myself that's what i think of when i so i ah. clicked on the link and it wasn't that at all in fact what was really curious was the word redundant here and how the word redundant is used by non-linguists versus linguists and you'll enjoy yeah. this Herod. yeah i probably will so their examples of redundant place names were things like east timor uh el camino way uh lake tahoe uh, La Brea. Oh, wait, wait, ta- wait, so I'm assuming Tahoe is the native word for lake, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah. So, anyway. Uh, <laughs> well, that's all, what this immediately does show there are not just one, but several different types of, uh, of possibilities here. <laughs> well, I made the point, I reposted it on my page as opposed to taking it to the linguists. I wasn't really feeling fully Stonian in my embracement of taking a bit of time out of my holiday to. Uh, to have some, uh, you know, virtual punch-ups with some linguists. So I put it on my own page, and I said, um, actually, I don't think this is a really good use of the term redundant, because I actually think yeah. these place names are really smart. It means if you come to it with one language, you'll know exactly what it is. And if it's you a lake. It it's a bit like a sign that says, you know, sortie on one side and exit on the other. You immediately know when you come to it with yeah. what it means, but it doesn't make the two languages redundant unless you well, actually yeah. know the two languages. Yeah, yeah, that, that's something I agree. That's what I'm saying. There are, if you really have to expand the concept of redundancy. Mm. There are several different dimensions, like that tr- translinguistic, you know, different languages. That's, that's an entirely different situation than East Timor, if there's no more a West term. <laughs> team. Well, I mean, if, the, yeah. No, 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 the East Timor, the point is that Timor means East in, in oh, oh, so oh, it's the same kind of thing as Tahoe. Then. Yes, okay. exactly. No, they're all okay, of that. So that's one, are they all of that type? Yes, they are. None of ah, them are. Ah, they're not redundant at all. That's a stupid word for that's it. That's exactly yeah. my point. Yeah. So, yeah. so my linguist friend, who doesn't listen to Stone Ape, I know that for a matter of fact, then posted that it was more tautological. But again, 
tautology is the wrong word here. No, I get, this is a linguist writing yes. this stuff? This is a Harvard, uh, <laughs> this is a, an Ivy League educated linguist. I mean, teaching there or studied there? Both. Holy shit. Okay, well, then they, she is using language the way she wants to use it. <laughs> and the point that I made is that if you know both languages, then you can kind of make that argument. Yeah, all all three of those people. <laughs> well, this is the thing, because she was posting solely to linguists, and linguists were all right on, yeah, that's redundant. That's kind of <laughs> well, this is why I left academic. Uh, yeah, look, believe me, Heron, after, after this experience, I thought, Heron is right. <laughs> It was really sad. I was so excited, you know, because I discovered Korzybski and, and language all of a sudden gave me this focus for this prior 10 years of exploration. And all of a sudden I had something I could get my hands on. Mm. And so uh, I immediately thought, okay, I'm getting out of school. Now I can go to graduate school in linguistics. And I started talking to linguists in the departments and it didn't take very long to just figure out that that wasn't going to help. <laughs> It really, yeah, it struck me as, it just smacked me upside the head. I mean, it really took me, I was just stunned. I mean, I was stunned yeah. by the assertion of authority for a start when she oh, yeah. claimed that it was yeah. taut actually tautological was probably a better term. Yeah. And I, I, my wife is not a linguist. And I said, I explained to her the circumstances and she was just as I was, you know, relatively smacked by the whole thing. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, I've, I mean, truth be told, my friend has, well, not directly. What's happened is that other linguists, particularly um, computer linguists of, or computational linguistics, whatever the field is, is referred to formally, have written about Noble 8 previously. And I've used her as a means of getting in contact with these people because she's typically yeah. known these people independently. Yeah. Um, but, yes, it did strike me as... Yeah, really quite strange that um, some schmuck in Vegas in a hotel can uh, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Because yeah, it really, it didn't seem to me. I, I guess this this is this is my inner pedantry coming out. Or I I would prefer to call it precision in using language, which is what pedantry means. Well. <laughs> yeah, but that has a, a whole, you know, it's got this really negative overtone, and, and we don't have to apologize for this anymore. I think this is, if the human race doesn't become generally capable of reasoning in these kinds of domains, we are doomed. Mm. Amen. <laughs> anyway, I thought you'd like that story, so I, I, I put yeah. that one up front in my, in my yeah. pages of notes here. Um, so, yes, in no particular order. Again, I... I I feel I'm kind of completely out of order with these topics. I, got I have up. no way of knowing whatever comes is just fine for me. <laughs> and nobody else knows either, so you can make it up and nobody will ever know. I, I should ask you politely if you have any topics that you want to float. Um, no. So, let's... Let's throw this up. I'll, I'll, I'll talk. I want to talk about your journals. So I want to spend a bit of time talking about your journals, and then we can return to this. So you've actually spent some time browsing through there. Huh? So, well, here's the thing, folks. <laughs> I, I spent I spent about two and a half hours trying to work out what version of your journal I hadn't downloaded because what happened was that 
once the site that it was on Scribbit, no longer on Scribbit, folks. I've moved it to the Internet Archive. Well, it's you on Scribbit. You can still you can still pay yeah. the nine bucks in order to get Heron's writing. But look, if you're smarter, just come to the Internet yeah. Archive Stone Ape. I've got them all there. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so there were thirty five that were posted. No, I, I understand what's going on now. I mean. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you, I, I knew there was one missing, but that was implied anyway in the way I numbered The problem it. was that there was one duplicate, and it took yeah, me the two dupl- hours. You're right. I, I don't know how that happened. That's been removed now. Thank you for noticing that. Yeah, I don't know what haven't happened with that. If you, if you claim any degree of OCD, I guess I must share this trait with you, because to collect an entire set and to be robbed of one... And I, we, we corresponded associated with the missing one. I knew about that. But yeah. to, for it appear that through... And I downloaded them twice in full to try and get to 35. And then I realised, hold it. <laughs> I had paper notes. You've got to, you can imagine that my mind was um, robbed. It said there are 35. And I only have 34, so I'm going to do the process again, and then I'm going to go through them individually. And it was only after about two hours, and this was getting up to like 11.30 at night. So you never got a chance to actually look oh, at Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, Heron. No, 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 no. <laughs> so, what I'm going to do is, with every Stone Ape podcast, and I did it with the last one, I'm going to put two of them explicitly into the feed. And the first two that I selected were... I don't have the numbers in front of oh, me, but one was, from, one was from 1979 <laughs> through to 1982, and the other one, I think, was from the mid... In fact, it was probably the last three months of 1988, and I selected both of them for different reasons. The first one I selected because I thought it was the most concise indication of your early thinking, particularly associated with um, the, the church, um, the construction of what language was in, in reference to matters of fact. Um, there were a variety of themes in the first one. There was also an underlying theme within that one associated with uh, food and body weight, which I wanted to talk about, and also associated with uh, racism and dealing or recon- deconstructing and reassembling without having racist elements, which I thought yeah. was absolutely fascinating. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> this, this is going to be so much fun. <laughs> so, yeah, my, my view is that every week I will take two and through my own selection. Um, and in, in point of fact, I had read about close to between three, maybe three and a half thousand pages worth within the first night, and I stopped probably around 1am. Actually reading? Yes. Or, or, or scanning through and picking up some no, things? Actually, and you skipped over the shopping lists, I'm Well, assuming. some of them I read, actually, because I thought <laughs> the changes in your diet was actually really interesting. Ah! See, this is, this is going to be really almost invaluable to me. I mean, I've always used them uh, as a source of reviewing who I am and what I'm thinking. That was the whole point of them, is to get my ideas out of my head and onto paper where I could see them and relate to them. Mm. And, uh, but I've never gotten any feedback from anybody else on any of this stuff. So there were a number of things that came through it, and um, I'm just adding additional notes because there were some things that I didn't really want to touch on, but I since thought, now I'm talking to you, why don't I actually talk about them? I think the thing that struck me initially going through them was that you were writing them in large part 
to do kind of pers- interpersonal exercises associated with deconstructing various elements. I want, I had a sense that you were doing some either formal or informal studies through periods of time uh, while you were writing them as well. I'm not sure whether it was um, through the EST period or whether you, because I'm not really clear when you actually did your degree in, in a kind of year time frame. Yeah. So, so I'm not really clear because there was some, <laughs> neither am I. <laughs> there, there were references to page numbers associated with notes and various other things that I kind of accepted was that you were dealing with external material that was either being presented to you formally or informally through various sections. Well, I've always been a student one way or another. So, you know, I was involved with S for a while. That mm-hmm. that wasn't so much as a student thing, but that was a separate thing, but I was active in that for a couple of years. And I did TM, you know, for a couple of years. Mm. Yeah, I, my, my sense is, and I, uh, there were periods that I know about because we've talked about them, and there were other periods which just kind of fell into place to a certain extent. Um, the bit that was... You, you know, are, you note- are you keeping page numbers and references for some of this stuff? Because I'd what love I'm doing, to... What I'm doing is actually putting them out... What I'm doing is putting them out in podcast form. So if you go to the feed, you'll see explicitly the two that I've looked through. And the one, uh-huh. the one in... Um, well, the reason I'm asking is because, I mean, obviously I have them here on my hard drive. Mm-hmm. And if there's a particular page... No, I, don't want to, I don't want to make it with regards to... I want, I want to do because basically no specific page reference the things that I want to talk about. Yeah. Okay. No, but, no, what I'm saying, Tom, yeah. though, is in the future, it, for, for my sake, mm-hmm. if you run into interesting observations mm-hmm. that you want to talk about, that you think shed some light on something, notate the page number. So, the quotes, you know, so that I can look yes, at these but, things. I mean, yeah, my view is that they don't exist. Well, to, to you, they exist in single pages, and maybe to someone in the future reviewing this audio. But for a listener to this audio, what I want to give is kind of general themes that they can go back to. And yes, I will endeavor to do that in the future. The yeah, nature just of the for way. Me. That's okay. All. The yeah. nature of the way that I consume this, however, is reading and then rereading to reaffirm particular sections. Oh, really? So you're more like studying it than just yeah, reading it. I think the, the okay. nature of what struck Holy me shit. is, is You're writing. probably putting more thought into it than I did. I, my, my, my view is that may actually be the case here, Heron. But I, I, I view... I mean, there was a certain period... I think the first two notebooks, which are only like 200 pages... Are really you kind of feeling your sense of what the oh starting with is. the little the little yeah, oh the yeah little yeah well that's why they they're numbered one through five because yeah. I went through five different formats yeah. before I landed on one that that stuck yeah, yeah. you know this isn't this or it could be anyway re- invaluable to me to to get a, another person looking at this stuff and reflecting back flick, reflecting it back to me mm. you know uh, you're you're gonna see stuff. <laughs> that completely escaped me, I'm sure. <laughs> well, certainly that's the way I felt reading through it. Yeah. I mean, to give an introduction associated with the text that I've read so far, my sense is that somewhere through the early books, in fact, maybe even from the get-go, you had the view that this was something that you were going to share with other people at some stage. <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I certainly didn't see it as a secret or anything. You know, a private journal. Um, in when I on the first six books, you know, the little Mead memo pads. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the first stuff I wrote in there, the Mary Hartman stuff, was just to write something. I mean, the guy gave me this thing, <laughs> so I wrote that down because that was available at the moment. Mm. And um, it, like I say, they were, it was just meant, he gave it to me to put, put in my shirt pocket where the cigarettes used to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I didn't really have any agenda at all in the beginning, but it certainly wasn't secret. And, and I, I, I didn't mind if people looked at it or anything. I just didn't see it as any big deal, really. I was just sort of writing stuff down. And, I mean, certainly, I, get, I guess my view is by the point where, for me anyway, it started getting interesting. You obviously had a keen sense of what you were, like, the, the purpose of exploration, basically. The purpose of putting this work in, in a written form and also the senses you've noted that you would go back periodically and review it. I think you had this sense yeah. probably by the time it was in the, the larger format, if not earlier. Oh, I think I got on to that actually pretty early. Yeah. I, well, I mean, well, yeah, the, the importance of putting your ideas outside of your brain mm-hmm. onto some other thing so that when you, when you write your next idea down, you see the last one you wrote. I thought there were there were a number of points where I laughed out loud. I think there were. The, the, <laughs> I hope these, I thought I hope I was laughing too. Right? So I mean, you know, sometimes people that appear to be interesting are just crazy. I mean, those kind of insights yeah. are oh, just yeah. kind of yeah. beautifully um, put out there. The thing that struck me um, as well was the undercurrent of mathematical and geometric exploration, oh, yeah. which is very central in my notebooks as well. Ah, and yeah. I think that's something that... Um, you yeah, know, those are fun pages to, to look at, just visually, those pages no, are fun. But to, well, to a certain extent, I mean, I think to people who aren't mathematically or geometrically inclined... They probably would take the the extreme negative view as opposed to the oh, extreme positive uh, view. Oh yeah, yeah, for, yeah I'm sure. Yeah. But cares what they think. Exactly. For, for, <laughs> for, folks, for folks that are similarly afflicted. So let's get into some of the deeper topics. I mean, the thing the thing that I had thought about your journals leading into this was the first person that you, to from our discussion that you gave this entire set to was your son. Is that correct? Yeah. When, Apparently, he wasn't very impressed. Well, reading through this, I was very <laughs> mindful of that fact, actually. Because yeah. when was he actually born? Oh, I don't know. It was the mid to late 80s, wasn't it's it? It's probably in there. Well, sure, yeah, it's it's in there somewhere. Okay. But it's not easy to find. It didn't. That, that's one thing I, I am aware of, is there's my life never really changed. Hmm. Going through all of that, uh, that was w- one of the major turning points in my life was when I realized that I'd already made – I was already married to, to my own mission. And, Certainly. And that uh, this is not the place for me. I can't do this. But I guess irrespective of your son's you know, philosophical or intellectual or cognitive elements, his – his absence, even if it was just a single page or maybe a few pages through, mm-hmm. his absence from this, you know, if, I don't want to use this term lightly, but kind of yeah. magnum opus in terms of your <laughs> kind of collection, is, is, is it's very my, notable. It's my journal. It's a journal. So That's what it is. I've known other people who've had journals. My mother is a good example. My mother has actually given her journals to the Australian National Library. Yeah, journals so, are very flexible yeah, form. Yeah. <laughs> it is a very flexible form, but certainly um, 
my mother's journals are very interesting reading. I've read them uh, periodically. Yeah, they were probably written to be read by somebody, right? No, they weren't, actually. They're actually a deep and quite introspective um, set of kind of psychological, um, almost plays, really. I mean, my mother, um, aside from being a diplomat, was also a published author of both fiction and nonfiction. And she is very interested in human psychology in her writing. Um, although not formally trained as such. So actually, a lot of her uh, journals are um, like plays with actors <laughs> conducting interactions that yeah. enable her to understand various aspects of her life. It is very interesting to read it like yeah. that. So I came wow. to your journals with a view that m- maybe this element would be absent, but certainly there would be something else in there that I could kind of glean from them. And the thing that's the, the the themes that struck me in the first journal, aside from the first one that I put out, the nineteen seventy nine to nineteen eighty two one, was the brief but um, ongoing discussions associated with racism, and also your relationship with food. And this struck <laughs> okay. me as too because they both embody. You no, know, I have no memory. I mean, I mean, I've always had an issue with food in some way or other. Mm-hmm. But uh, racism, I'm, surp- I'm really, I'm really interested to hear about that because I never, if any, I never would have even thought of anything like that. That I was ever concerned with that. Well, one of your self-analysis periods is or passages, let's yeah. say, is associated with why you are a bigot, why you have bigotry, uh-huh. and there are other sections where you write, maybe in jest, but certainly associated with external concepts that you're embodying in writing, the word nigger, um, which can, of course, be thematically used as, you know, John Lennon used it and a wide variety of other folks used it. Um, You know, Crumb's work, for example. But it is in a very interesting period of kind of... And the the writing goes through phases of introspection <laughs> and then explicit statements, and then there are a variety of forms through the writing. But the fact that See, you... I'm not sure there are forms. This idea that there are forms there, I mean, there may be, but see, that was never in my mind at all, obviously. I just... Well, not obviously, but I didn't think about about anything in that sense, about... You know, I just wrote what was on my mind at the moment. So some of the passages go over multiple days. In fact, some of them go over weeks because your pen what changes you, and your writing can you changes. Me, can you give me the actual uh, page? I mean, the section on that I should be easy to find, right? I, I have it on my iPad in um, another room. Let me go and get my iPad. Okay. Okay, I have my iPad here. Unfortunately, it's going to load it dynamically, so hopefully the audio yeah. quality won't. Well, you know, work. if not, we could talk this part of the discussion and put it off till next week, too. I mean, it's not that big. We don't have to do this right now. But, I mean, if you find interesting stuff, I mean, it, I, I'm really interested in, in really looking at it. And if there's some something interesting to be learned here, then let's learn it. Well, I think we can talk about – I mean, my concern, I guess, is that there are certain themes throughout – that it's interesting to have a high-level discussion, but my, I guess my broader concern is that if we have a high-level discussion on these themes, you're not reflecting on the period of time where you wrote the the text. I mean, the stuff associated yeah. with racism, for example, which I found fascinating going through the initial, the, the first one that I posted um, from uh, 79 to 82, um, then we're not actually, and I think the benefit also for people listening in 
Although they can... So let's, okay, let's talk about the forms, <laughs> because that's where this came from. So, um, for example, so I'm in the early pages here, just in the kind of mid-teens, uh, so 15, 16, 17. This seems to be written pretty well on the same day. Yeah, my pad has crashed. This isn't going to work, Heron. Okay. This so let's talk about it in general terms, at least. Um, so, as I said, well... As you seem to be more um, able to talk about food versus bigotry. Well, um, I can talk about anything. It's just if we're going to talk about something I wrote sometime in the past, I need uh, it's, it's pointless to talk about it if I can't see what it is we're talking about. You know, not, not your analysis of what it's being talked about, but what actually happened, what, what I actually wrote in the context I wrote it in. Maybe I'll be able to remember something. Maybe it'll be all news to me. I don't know. <laughs> So, okay, what we will do then is we'll put this part off for a week. Which yeah. Which I think is very fine. good. Do we and have other stuff to talk about? We have sure plenty we of other stuff to oh, talk okay. about. Um, yeah. And what I will do is I will endeavor to get uh, page numbers and additional information so we can talk specifically. Yeah, yeah, this would be fascinating. Elements. Yeah, that'd be so, really interesting. I can't wait to do this. <laughs> yes. So it is actually going to be a much slower, more um, detail oriented process. Than I had originally uh, planned, but I'm I'm up for it, Harry. Well, I mean, uh, w- what would be the point of it uh, in some high? You know, if it's too abstracted, I don't think it's of you know much use. I I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm willing to go through the process that you were describing, just because I think it will actually be quite interesting, and also, as as you note, it will give the opportunity for others who are interested to follow along. Uh, with the specific text as we go through it. So, I, I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to do this, Heron. Um, My think, journals is a text. Yes. This, this will be known as the boring period of the Stone Age podcast, and uh, people will hammer through it in order to get yeah. past this element. But yeah, that's what I'll do, Heron, because you're right, this is too abstract a thing to to talk about in general terms. So we will go back to the text. If, if I can just talk on a kind of high level, the sure. thing that fascinated me about the 1988 text, which was only, I think, for the last three months of 1988, um, was that you were assembling both a computer and a robot through that period of your journal. And it was really quite interesting because you had some really quite striking primary insights into the nature of computation and robotics which I thought, independent from the other themes going through the journals, was worth focusing on. Well, you know, and I have not the slightest memory of anything. When you said that I was designing a computer and a robot, I can't wait to find out what page that's on and read all about it. So, for <laughs> next week, folks, we will, we will talk about uh, Heron's, uh, you know... See, it's the Alzheimer's. I think that's probably what it is. I don't, you know... I really live in the... No, it's not that. It's the enlightenment. I, I live in the moment. Mm. You know? I, I can't be bothered with the past. <sighs> That's it. <laughs> Very good. Well, speaking about... This. Well, let's go on to the next subject. <laughs> I mean, I could talk... Not, really, seriously, I was designing a computer and a robot. Mm. I mean, like, really designing one and I was going to build it, or is just a thought experiment kind of I thing? I think in part it was a thought experiment, but within the thought experiment, you had, you had analysis that indicated that you were seriously oh, considering oh, yeah. the... Oh, yeah. Okay. Now I can, I can go along with that. Yeah. 
I, that's just part of me clarifying my thinking is, is going through all those kind of parameters and, and thinking them through. But you had, within that, you had, like, binary hardware gates. You had, like, AND gates, all gates. Well, I used like to that. know a little bit about that, but, you know. Or if I, actually, I'm not sure. I think I made that stuff up, probably. Or, do, or you think not? You think I, I actually knew that stuff? It looks pretty good. Okay. someone who has some insight into that kind of stuff. I mean, I think the thing that interested me, and I have a number of books from the time, actually books intended for children, um, from the mid to late 80s, was that there was an immense, there was kind of undercurrent of an empowerment community associated with if you understand and can control or create the hardware and the software, you are going to be in part, you're going to be part of the new world. You're going to be part of this digital revolution that kind of creates the future, which is very much, I don't know, perhaps a reaction to science fiction, perhaps embracing science fiction. I certainly think of it more in terms of embracing science yeah. fiction. But your insights through this I found absolutely fascinating. And really, if there was a period where I reread, where I literally skipped back 10 pages and reread again, um, that was the section that struck me. A lot of the um, analysis is. I would equate to, and this in no way is, I mean, what I, I'll phrase this in such a way as saying that there are others out there, because I thought a lot of the analysis, particularly the linguistic analysis, is you going through a degree of self-exploration that I think a number of people go through. Some yeah. don't write it down as such. But I think yeah, well, the kind of exercises that you were going through and you, is not unique. Yeah. By this time in the writing, uh, I was clearly aware of the fact that this was an artifact for future sociologists or psychologists to look at. Hmm. And that's still how I see it. Is it's just a guy trying to figure stuff out so, his, his way and documenting it, more or less. Certainly. It would have been, there were, there were points in the work where, um, particularly, I guess, through the early 80s, <laughs> where there were constant women's names and phone numbers written through. <laughs> yeah. And there were, there were various points of kind of um, dating and kind of picking up women advice through there as well that I found absolutely fascinating. I mean, there was a beautiful oh. vignette. <laughs> of your, you know, your thinking at any given time on completely oh, unrelated shit. topics. Yeah, this is going to be really fun. <laughs> you know, yes. revisiting. So I have no idea what's in there. Really, I mean, I mean, I do. To me, it was an intellectual mind. the The fact that I wrote other stuff in there, well, that was just part of my life. Mm. But it was so. So there are really two different kinds of writings. There's probably more personal stuff than should be in there. Mm -hmm. And then there are more intellectual epistemological ramblings. And, uh, and those are quite different, I think, aren't they? <laughs> I, I, I found your, well, in abstract terms, I mean, the, the point that I wanted to talk about associated with racism and food mm -hmm. is that that is something that you can talk about associated with your entire life, not just a specific period. And the issues associated with, to a lesser extent, racism, but to a greater extent, food, I've also gone through, and I associate, in fact, I associate both those things very closely together, because the people who I've found, um, particularly associated with food, that have very, very particular views associated with food, also typically 
have subtle views associated with racism as well, if not explicit, certainly implicitly. And I actually <laughs> like... And so let me talk about my experience here, and this might, um, you know, get us talking associated with your experience too. My uh, mother... So on, on my mother's side in particular, I basically have the physical form of my grandfather. My grandfather was tall, he was broad-shouldered, he was not extremely stocky, but he was certainly relatively stocky by Australian standards. And he basically had a relatively happy-go-lucky attitude. He was, a, he was a family doctor, so he saw a lot of stuff. He delivered a lot of babies. He, you know, dealt with a lot of people towards the end of their lives, these kind of things. But certainly in terms of men that I've had in my life, he's been a kind of continued inspiration. Yeah. He, um, Did you know him? Oh, yeah. No, he oh, okay. passed away uh, a couple of years ago. Ah, um, so okay. I so he's a. Go, yeah. I used to go and spend my summers um, with my grandparents um, through my well, because of my parents' divorce. But even prior to my parents' divorce, I would go and spend substantial amounts of time with my uh, grandfather who passed away, my grandmother who's still alive. In contrast, so my grandfather's family they migrated to Australia. Um, in the, I don't know, 1840s, 1850s, they owned a series of amusement parks in the UK. Uh, these were gardens, basically, where there would be clowns and water and, um, you know, people selling food and this kind of stuff. They were, you know, in not necessarily English country gardens, but certainly something where people would go, um, you know, just for, for pleasure, you know. Yeah. And um, th something happened and they moved to Australia. Uh, there's a photograph, um, not a photograph, there's a painting of my, I think, four generations removed grandfather who came to Australia. And in the painting, there is a small section, which is the deeds to these parks, which I guess they sold when they left the UK. So that's my grandfather's side of the family. My grandmother's side of the family lost everything in the 1890s depression. So the depression prior to the Great Depression. And they always had the view, they were always the poor cousins, basically, of their family. Um, my grandmother is extremely concerned about a variety of things which come from her upbringing, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. She still was sent to the local private school that her family went to, um, but basically she had to cycle great distances to get there, and she was always the one who, you know, had... had hand made down clothes and these kind of things. So she has a very um, uh, almost dichotomous view of kind of class struggle and a sense of class and the way to behave and the way to act, even if you don't have money, um, is very, very strong. And so my grandfather basically, particularly towards the end of his life, um, he, he continued to work until he really couldn't work anymore. He worked into his late 70s. And he was a relatively jovial fellow who, you know, would like to eat mixed nuts and drink sherry and uh, would always, you know, carve a little extra meat and these kind of things. His view of food was um, relatively open and free, whereas my grandmother's view of food, because she had, I mean, she was a very slight woman um, and my grandfather was, you know, taller and larger. And she had a series of children um, who basically were, none of them were like her, all of them were of my grandfather's stature. But at the same point, she had this view of, you know, what it meant to be fat, what it meant to eat too much, the portions of food that people should be given. And these kind of what I will call food neuroses were certainly passed on very heavily to my mother. 
to the point where, you know, my mother <laughs> yeah. basically through my entire childhood was constantly dieting, constantly yeah. very observant, but she had the stature of my grandfather. Now, my mother, aside from other things, was a bikini model in her late teens. I mean, she, you know, she was um, quite an attractive woman who had quite an attractive figure. Um, but this whole neurosis associated with food, the consumption of food, good food, bad it's food. pornography exactly. in, in Western culture. It's almost except that it's legal and it's all over television. And exactly. It's the same. It's appealing yeah. to the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, my, my <laughs> view is that the neurosis associated with food, particularly associated with body image and degradation of body image. Now, I mean, clearly there's morbidly obese. And clearly there's a beast. And clearly there's overweight. And clearly there are all these well, terms every, that yeah. exist in a yeah. scientific sense. But yeah. in, in practical terms, the kind of neuroses and psychology associated with food, which oftentimes pushes people into these you know, bizarre conditions, I view as completely and utterly abhorrent. I think that the psychology <laughs> associated with that... I was a child who, for periods of time, through my mother's dieting practices was not allowed to eat, and this included natural sugar, this included things like fruit, you know, foods that contain sugar. Yeah, I went through periods yeah. of time where I was on various, and the thing is that my mother cannot cook. She's not, she can put things together, but she doesn't cook, you know. So from an yeah. early age, I cooked for the family. My father cooked for the family. When my father left, I started cooking for the family. And my mother, to this day, has this thing which is still completely stigmatised by her mother, who is still alive, <laughs> associated with food. So my view is that you can take responsibility for your life and you can divorce yourselves from yourself from the neuroses that you are programmed to through your childhood relatively easily. And I've certainly tried to do this as much as possible with my mother because ultimately this is just a toxic influence on her life. But it does strike me very strongly that of the people that I encounter in the outside world, a good number of them, either from one extreme or the other, will have various neuroses associated with food. Now, to be fair, I will not allow anyone to talk about what I'm eating or any of these kind of things because my mother just did that to death. And when I am in... So, for example, once I went out to eat with my sister-in-law <laughs> and my sister-in-law said, what you're eating looks disgusting. <laughs> now, my view is that that's not particularly appropriate, but with the views that I have associated... So my mother does this thing when I'm <laughs> around her where she comments continuously about my eating. Just continuously. And, and, and what you should do is laugh like I just did. <laughs> the problem with it is that you, I do initially, and then she has this thing where she grabs the back of my arm and just twists it. So she engages with a physical interaction uh, if she doesn't okay. get the... Yeah. So okay. my, my yeah. sense with regards to food is that it is something that... It, this is the unspoken racism. Racism is known and talked about explicitly. But the interactions with food and the programming associated with the interactions with food is something that I don't think my generation will tackle. I think this will be something that we tackle probably by the next generation or the generation following. Yeah, it's too, it's too late for you and me. Exactly. Uh, the next couple gen this is the way we raise our children. You exactly. know, if we don't make them neurotic about food. Again, you know, my sense of this is what we need is, you know, soylent purple. We need, we need fuel for our bodies. We don't need food anymore. We can move beyond that and, you know, have fuel pellets that we eat. 
or take somehow a couple times a day or whatever, whatever works out to be the best thing and just get rid of food altogether. It's just a fuel. You know, I don't put strawberry shortcake in my Honda just because it probably tastes good. It's lousy fuel. Have you ever, I mean, actually having talked about my mother in this way, my father, particularly through the periods of time where I've, there was a period of time where I was sick. I had glandular fever in my early 20s. And through the latter part of that, because basically I hadn't spent through my savings, but I spent a good portion of my money getting food to me because no one else would get food to me. I then went and lived with my father, who at the time was living by himself. His wife at the time was overseas, uh, and I spent probably about three months with him. He cooked the same meal every day. He cooked, <laughs> yeah. st- he cooked what I do. steamed rice <laughs> and shiitake mushrooms every day. Yeah. Every day we would eat the same it makes thing. Makes it real simple. Yeah. And that's the way he lived. Yeah. So it makes my, sense. My view is, well, this is you're an advocate of this. <laughs> well, no, and not for everybody, but for some people, it's it's the, for the reason I shave my head in, instead of getting haircuts. It's just simpler. It just eliminates one whole issue that you have to waste your time thinking about that's really inconsequential. You know, unless you think it's consequential. If you think it's really important to have different flavors every night and, you know, fine. Then, But if you don't, then what he's doing makes perfectly good sense. It's just, it's just simplifying the playing field. So I'm sympathetic to that in one regard. But I also do think I, – I, Well, then you have your choice of what areas you're going to simplify. So the things that I really enjoy and have enjoyed historically are things like growing my own food, which is something which maybe has not been part of your experience. Uh, You're so Neolithic. (laughs) Well, I don't know. It's one of these few things where even in prison they have gardens. I have had a quite large garden, actually. I have had several gardens in my lifetime, several of them big, you know, like – 30 yards by 20 yards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, this gives you no interest. Oh, it's fine. I, no, I think, that, I, I think that's our past. I, I don't have anything against it. Uh, it's just that I think most of my relationships with food about taste and texture and all that is really a kind of pornography. And it's just part of my brain damage, and it's there. I probably won't ever overcome it. But if a child was raised properly, they'd see that food is – Basically, what they need is whatever their body needs to keep it healthy and active and, and, you know, doing well. And that, you know, I think we could probably come up with, you know, like I said, we do that for dogs. You know, they've scientists study how dog, what they need. And the whole thing is in this one little pellet. <laughs> and the dog eats it and he's healthy and lives a long life. Well, I don't necessarily think that is the case. But... My view is that there's, particularly because we've recently changed our cat's diet, that there is a a quality of life that these animals have typically, which is degraded actually through the food that they eat. Well, Um, they're degraded living with human beings as pets. Certainly. Well, you see, that's an interesting point. I mean, I've, I've often pondered that, particularly being an animal owner. And my view is that the lives that my cats have are on a number of levels... Oh, yeah, hell of a lot. Probably any natural cat would trade it in immediately. And many have. Many have. Um, So, yes, I mean, I think it's an interesting... But here's my point associated with growing food. I think of it as something associated with my own survival. 
and I think of it along the same lines as an ability to build shelter, an ability to uh, wire electricity, an ability to create well, basic it's hardly that. It's pretty fucking basic, man. It doesn't take a whole lot to grow a garden. <laughs> well, you'd think that, and then you meet people that never that are live in fear of that. I mean, I meet plenty of huh. adults that don't grow gardens, and the primary reason well, most that people they stay, don't exactly. Yeah, yeah. Who no? Almost nobody grows gardens. That's just a tiny little fringe element. Yeah. So, I mean, my view is that there are certain skills and you know basic survival skills, first aid, what have you, that I think are critical knowledge. And I think you're right. In a utopian future. This kind of knowledge will not be available, but we are so far from a utopian future. Oh yeah, we got wild. Yeah, my view is that if if (laughs) if you know if in two or three generations' time they no longer need to have these skills, so you know, so much the better for them. Well, again, you're seeing this as a survival issue. Then, I mean, to you, uh, you plan on literally using these skills these skills to survive in the case of the collapse of civilization or I've something? Is that previ- what you're no, suggesting? No, look, I've used them previously in the collapse of my civilization. My uh-huh. civilization is local to me. <laughs> okay, so, all right, so, so this way you can have no, some no, tomatoes. No, 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 okay. let, me, let, me, let me explain this. <laughs> yeah. When I lived in the shed, when I was in my early 20s, when I was bringing together this noble ape thing, when I was amassing the... In- intellectual energy that basically got me to the US to a certain extent, I lived very, very poorly. I lived basically on a very below the poverty line in Australia in terms of the money that I had. And ah, so you were actually, you were growing your exactly. own food. Yeah, okay, well, that makes perfectly good sense so, in that situation, absolutely. Yeah. In and a reasonable just, world, you wouldn't have to do that. <laughs> but the dictations of what a reasonable world is sometimes are not under my control. Yeah, no. <laughs> and it doesn't require apocalypse or all this yeah. kind of stuff in no. order to cause this. It can be some relatively basic things that occur in, you know... Listen, we're all just a, a month or two away from homelessness. Exactly. And, you know, so, I'm well aware of that. So my view is that the, <laughs> the cultivation of food and the things that gave me... So you talk about food as pornography, and, I mean, that's, that's kind of beautiful language, but in, in basic terms... When And this is the thing I think about, particularly in the 93 writing, because I didn't have food through that period. I mean, literally, days went by without sustenance. That when I actually had the opportunity to eat in those times, it was an experience which was beyond yeah. sexual. This was human oh, yeah, absolutely. survival. Yeah. This was sure. sugars entering the blood. See, I've never experienced anything like that. You see. Never in my life. And I have at least, well, I have on three nameable occasions and periodically throughout other times. no idea what hunger is. Yes. <laughs> it is a very interesting thing because you're right, the food neuroses aspect, which I try to deny is in fact been central to aspects of my life. And oftentimes, particularly when I'm forced into conditions of, well, conditions where food becomes the primary necessity in terms of my own survival, then it is a very different thing. Yeah. I've finally, you know, it's really interesting that we're talking about this. That, that I mean, that has always been an issue. But for the first time in my life, I'd say in the last, well, since the winter solstice, I actually feel like I have it under control. That I, at this point, 
um, I've, I've found a sustainable way to fuel my body that I can live with. And I've got about, I'll uh, say, at least 30 pounds to lose. And maybe more. I don't know. We'll see when I get down there. But it's real clear to me that uh, it's not talk anymore. That I, I've already lost 15 pounds since the, the winter solstice. And I have no desire to change. And the only thing I really changed, well, I changed what I was eating, but I quit eating after 6 o'clock. I made a hard rule, you know, that's, that's not debatable. You know, it's something you can fudge on, <laughs> you know. But you're drinking wine. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, but I'm. Not, that's not the kind of thing I'm talking. What I used to do is snack. But I mean, t- to be frank, wine is calorific. Oh, I don't care about the cal. That's not the point. I mean, I've been. I drink wine once a week, basically, Fair when enough. I talk to you. Fair <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that, Aaron. But so let's talk. I mean, in terms of your food, whatever. We haven't really talked in any detail associated with that aspect. I've been talking no. a lot about my stuff. Yeah. We haven't been talking about your stuff. You mean how I live now? Well, let's talk about how you live now. Associated yeah, well, it's, with it's real simple. I have two th- – it's just like your father. <laughs> Only I've got two things mm-hmm. instead of just one, and I just go back and forth. One of them is uh, raw snow peas and green beans and uh, romaine lettuce and a whole bunch of other shit and tomatoes and um, apples and other stuff and uh, cheese and um, and I have this big salad. I eat one meal a day, usually mm. in the uh, early afternoon. And um, and I have that and then I'll have a, a, some kind of meat, you know, a, a piece of chicken or um, a piece of fish or, you know, I've got a bunch of options in there, mm-hmm. in the freezer, you know, and that's it. And I, and my, and I have my ice cream too. <laughs> ah. well. But that, and then, uh, and, and if I and if I have, and thing is, I, I really don't have any restrictions. I can eat any goddamn thing I want to during the day up till six o'clock. What what was killing me before because i never really ate that much during the day was snacking in the evenings you know just be kind of sitting here reading and i always had not always but more than i should have would have something to snack on while i was doing that and uh that doesn't work so i just don't eat anything after six and and by and this has been for three months now and you know, I can live with this easy because I can eat anything I want up until six o'clock. Mm. <laughs> and I've been losing, like I say, about a pound a week. So it's slow. And I'm still working. You know, I've got a pretty strong workout, too. So, yeah. But I'm, by the end of the year, I'm going to be at least 170 or maybe down to 160. I don't know. I don't know how far I'm going to go. Hmm. The thing is, the thing is, I actually feel in control of it now. I never have before. I've always felt out of control with food. It was like I was out of control with television. I, I couldn't really regulate my television use. I had to get rid of the thing. That was the only way. I, that was the only way I could. I could live. I could not live with it. I, I would. I just get sucked into it. I was an addict. Hmm. <laughs> yes. Interesting. So you quit smoking through similar 
Well, it was just, yeah, I, well, there's a, I mean, I, I worked my way up to it, but when the time came, yeah, I reached for a cigarette one night and lit it and went, shit, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and that was the end of that. Mm. But see, that, that, the whole thing about that is it was not a decision. It was a realization. It wasn't like, okay, I promise I'm never, ever, ever going to smoke again. <laughs> you know, it was like, Jesus, I don't want to do that. It, it, it wasn't a decision or any, any willpower thing. It was this realization that I just didn't want to smoke anymore. That, ew, I, I don't want to do that. And I never did. And, and I never, it was easy, actually. Quitting smoking was one of the easiest things I ever did. Mm. So let's talk about your salad. Let's explore that. Okay. <laughs> My, boy, this is a hot podcast, man. It is. Aaron's it's, salad. <laughs> the details tomorrow at 7. <laughs> so, no, this, this is, I'm only going to touch on one thing here. Because um, my view is that the tomatoes that you put into your salad, mm-hmm. do you notice the change over the seasons in terms of the quality of tomatoes that you eat? or do you- I've only been doing this really since the winter solstice. Okay, and they've been regular since then. I got—I mean, I buy this set of organic. I mean, they're particular little tiny tomatoes, not little tiny, but sort of small tomatoes, though that mm. I really like, and uh, and they've been basically the same since December. So I don't know. We'll see how the rest of the year goes. Mm. I mean, the the when I talk about gardening, tomatoes are. The central theme in terms of just the improvement of quality that you get from gardening. Yeah, we. I grow my. Well, I have a t- uh, the cherry tomato, wild cherry tomatoes mm-hmm. that pop up in the back, and it's astounding, man. The the number and they're good. Oh yeah, this yeah. is exactly what I'm talking oh, about. Yeah. No, these tomatoes that I'm getting are quite good, actually. I mean. Yeah, I know the difference between bland <laughs> tomatoes and ones that have some flavor. Mm. And uh, I really like these tomatoes that I'm getting now. They're expensive, but they're really good. <laughs> yeah, you can probably – yeah, I guess it's whether you're willing to spend the money to get good stuff or not. Maybe that's – I think the investment of time, although the investment of time – I mean, I, I talk to coworkers about this because some coworkers are owning houses with gardens for the first time. And – their experience has been through their childhood as well. I mean, they've come from places like China and India. Their, their experiences have been, have been living in apartments and not having the space to grow their own vegetables. Right. And yeah. then now discovering that they can grow vegetables relatively easily and yeah. the change in... Um, oh, cool. So, yeah. tomatoes, I think, aside from one of my co-workers who's come from China, he grew, he grew tomatoes last year. And just didn't realize the kind of weed-like nature of them to the point where... <laughs> you can't get rid of them. Well, he, he was giving away more tomatoes than he yeah. himself was eating, and he was yeah. bringing in these things of tomatoes. Yeah, that's right. yeah, so what I have to do here. Yeah, for, yeah. Uh, for a couple months, uh, I'm bringing tomatoes into work every week. <laughs> so, yes, I guess, I mean, from my own experience growing food, uh, corn, um, tomatoes, uh, strawberries... Yeah. These are all things that immediately, for relatively little effort, the quality that you can get by growing them yourself is just... 
I had a friend that. Yeah, but you got to figure in the time that it takes to do it and the effort. Whether you like going out and digging in a garden, some people just don't like that. They don't want to get their hands dirty. Fair enough. You know, but I think I think the cost benefit analysis of the taste. That's always been something yeah. that I've returned yeah. to. Well, I think you can. I think the tomatoes I have that I get are pretty good, actually. I'm I'm little now that you you know. Actually, I hadn't thought about it, but now that you mention it, uh, yeah, these tomatoes are really good. And I've started buying only organic uh, stuff too. You know, stuff without pesticides or anything. So, mm. um, and yeah, and it's it's kind of expensive. Like I say, it's uh, five bucks for maybe eight. Or ten of these small tomatoes. Certainly. And, uh, but hell, <laughs> that's a good deal, really. <laughs> so I have a number of other topics in front of me. That was the that was the extent of the food discussion that I wanted to get into. This well, wait, oh, what, <laughs> unless you have more that you wanted to. No, explain. no, I just don't get what that how what made that a subject. I mean, that sounds like uh, my view is, is something that, I wrote lots and lots yes. of. I, I mean, okay, I was writing about diet and what you should eat or shouldn't eat and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, your views associated with um, the perfect state associated with diet, I thought were really interesting because ah. you had a kind of ongoing theme associated with how many pounds overweight someone needed to be before oh, okay. they would be excluded uh, from oh, society. Yeah. yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In the, you know, in a reasonable world where everybody was held responsible for their contribution. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And the thing that always interests yes, me. This is, you know, really, yeah. For our next conversation, you, you really have to get this issue solved so that, that, that we can talk about this stuff by ref- – I mean, I don't mind talking about it in the abstract, but it will be more useful to me mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway if, if, I, uh, if we could actually refer the source material when we're talking. More importantly, I'm going to give you the page numbers about three days in advance. Oh, okay. So you can actually have yeah. time to go through and review yeah. and assemble your thoughts. Well, I'm I'm up for it anyway. You know, uh, yeah. yeah. I think it might be more interesting if, if you want to do it. If you want to do it that way, I'm not promising that I'll I'll do anything uh, about huh. it. But if you send them to me, I mean, there's a better chance that I'll do it than if you don't send them to me. <laughs> so, well, it also forces me to get this thing done, which means I'll probably get it done after we finish recording this evening. Um, okay. Which means that yeah, it, it'll it'll move through processes slightly faster if I. If I have to get them to you earlier, well, it, any any speed uh, or uh, time limits you're placing are ones you're creating for yourself. So, and, which is fine with me. I like the urgency, but don't expect me to be urgent about it. I'm not doing it with that <laughs> expectation. I'm doing it so I can outline it for my own. Uh, okay, time. yeah, cool. I love it that you're so enthusiastic about this. I think I think there's actually something worthwhile in this examination. I think there is too. I mean, I guess my broader concern here. Um, is whether there is benefit for other people listening to this. Oh, I I can almost guarantee it. Yes, there may be eight of them in the whole world. (laughs) This is the thing that interests me. I'm going to vent into this topic, although it wasn't one that I was planning on (laughs) talking about this evening. So now Model Rail Radio has broken 100,000 listeners. Wow, 100,000. I'm getting every episode I put out. (laughs) <laughs> hundred thousand. It's insane. And this is this is the point that I'm going to raise. I now get every episode I typically get between five maybe five to ten new listener emails of people <laughs> who are just like firstly, they always give me like really quite 
personal details associated with themselves because I guess that's the nature of actually doing these kind of audio recordings that the listeners get an immediate sense of who you are and want to immediately <laughs> yeah. be personable back to you. Yeah. Some of them are actually quite interesting. I respond to very, I, re, I very rarely respond to them mainly because my life is so... Do you have a, do you have a, like a standard reply? No, I don't you just, do them, you just don't do anything. Just don't yeah, do that anything. encourages them. Yes. You see, the thing that yeah. strikes me about it, it's very difficult. Um, you're, you're so bad. I want to actually, my, my hope is maybe, potentially, who knows, is to get Douglas Rushkov into this format because Douglas has now produced this book associated with how this immediacy of technology is all very bad and we need to go back to, very similar to his money uh, discussion, we need to somehow jettison this immediate technology, but again, no particular blueprint aside from a variety of psychoses that he mentions associated <laughs> with it. Here's my take of, from this. Um, I live in an always-on world. I'm always receiving email. I'm always receiving email from various parties. And to get a listener email sometimes is really great, but most of the time when I get it, I'm in some position of transition between one thing or another. The way that I create my life around these recordings, for example, is relatively unique in terms of turning everything off and giving everything at pay. I really like that there are people who email me, and I really... Um, enjoy the fact that there are so many listeners that get so much out of at least one particular one of my recordings. Um, but at the same point, uh, it's something that I much rather do in, in, in squish. I much rather meet listeners in squish than virtually yeah. and have them call. Actually, I enjoy talking to them. So when they call in the show, that's great. And what yeah. I used to do back when, I don't know, I only had 20,000 listeners to World Rail Radio, was um, encourage them to call in. And I do that through the show periodically. I say, look, if you're a new listener, you can engage in this. If you're getting a lot of enjoyment out of listening to this for the first time, please do, you know, make some time to call into one of the shows because, you know, I really enjoy talking yeah. with new listeners. Yeah, but the right. emails, that's the you know, ideal. Yeah, who the hell wants to? You, you would prefer meeting them in Squish to, to in the Matrix. So what I'd prefer is, well, no, I'd like meeting them in the Matrix too in terms of them actually calling in. Okay, yeah. But the email to me, um, aside from some, you know, occasional emails, really has very little impact. The other statistic yeah. is yeah. that typically per show, I now get one or two complaint emails <laughs> associated with some aspects. Some, yeah. you, you think Model Rail Radio would be relatively insipid. Why, do you, why don't you just... Is there any reason to have an email at all? Um... Well, yes. I mean, I don't. I don't mind being contactable, and I think basically. Well, no, no. You could make yourself contactable, but well, maybe make it a little more difficult. Well, here's the problem. Um, recruiters call me at my day job. I mean, I try to have a means of contact which is unobtrusive, which is email, where I can choose to collect at my own times. And recruiters have replaced stalkers in terms of the <laughs> physical call nuisance that I encounter now. So my view is that I don't mind email because email at least enables me to look at yeah. it. Anyway, getting yeah. to the point associated with the complaints. Um, in the past show, I typically, I typically edit chunks of model rail radio associated with over-talking and all this kind of stuff. But there are various characters that appear on the show on a regular basis who I do enjoy, um, but they sometimes get a bit overly involved with the show and sometimes their stuff <laughs> needs to get cut. It just happens. Yeah. Um, anyway, I got an email who, instead of... There, there are multiple ways that people can complain to me. 
Um, one of my least favourite methods is that people that just write long diatribes on, you know, third-party forums or whatever that I'm occasionally pointing to, <laughs> because that, to me, is just, you know, if you have a problem, we can probably resolve it. I'm not usually, with them. <laughs> probably not. not. Yeah, not with them. If they, if They're they, not interested. Yeah. If they were interested in that, they would have contacted you. <laughs> so, the, a fellow who's appeared periodically on Model Rail Radio decided to write a relatively concise but relatively emotionally empowered rant that he then sent to the Model Rail Radio mailing list. He thought he was sending it just to me. He got the email addresses confused. And this related to (laughs) a regular participant on the show Ah. who he just thought had completely lost the plot and wasn't basically making good radio. But his email was in the form of an attack to me associated with, why aren't you editing this guy out? Now, in the show that he was complaining about, I'd edited 20 minutes of this guy (laughs) out. Already. Already. What he got was the concise version. So, (laughs) my view was, and this occurred... You know, you should have just said, fuck you, Jack. You want to do this show? Come on over. (laughs) This is the interesting point. My view is that if you edit 10 minutes worth of publicly accessible audio, or if you've had a podcast that's had three episodes, I'm more willing to talk to you than someone who you know, who just comes out and says, and this is a fellow who's appeared on a few prior shows. Truth be told, the first show he appeared on, I cut two thirds of his audio. This is the guy that's complaining because it was long and rambling, and I suspect he was drunk. I mean, we do get drunk callers. Yeah, uh, yeah, I've so run anyway, into that too. So my view is that um, <laughs> I, I, I typically back in the day. I mean, I've been doing this podcast thing, you know, six plus years. I did a show where I was the only the audio editor I appeared on maybe two or three of the shows, but I did the audio editing for 20 plus shows for this particular podcast. And they were constantly, you know, they were constantly asking for edits and what have you. They actually put out some public information. The whole podcast had to be pulled or one particular show had to be pulled. I've had various situations where it's stuff that I've edited. People have asked to re-edit and I typically won't do that. I mean, it's just, I spend so much time doing this thing anyway that if you don't have basic existential respect for what I do, I can't you really You go hire it. somebody else, man. That's, yeah, exactly. So yeah. my view is that these kind of things are, you know, interesting in and of themselves. But I think it's to do with sheer volume. In fact, I'm really looking forward to actually starting to get complaint emails. I get a few nice and I share them with you associated with what we do, but I'm really looking for, for the complaint emails to actually start up associated with this particular group. Cause I think you've only really, you've only really reached. I must have, I, you don't think I've offended everybody at least twice so far. I don't know. I've tried. I mean, I, I mean, I've already said that ninety-eight percent of humans are a bunch of unconscious language monkeys. I think most that, of our that listeners pretty much do that shtick, that. though. Most of our listeners. Do no, that but that don't shtick. you get it, folks? I'm serious. I don't. This ain't shtick. <laughs> I'm quite serious. Maybe it's only ninety-five percent. I don't know. This is why I'm posting your journals now, Heron, to actually give like a text version of the. Holy shtick. shit! Well, so, well, the, I uh, listen. I pl- I pledge no allegiance to that text. <laughs> yes, it was at one time. It that was, was then. Time. This is now. You know, yes. whatever the hell is in there. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a little actually. Like I say, having you prodding through that thing is a little unnerving, actually, but mm. also interesting, just because I've never gotten any feedback by anybody who's actually studied the damn thing. You know, so you could. Like I said, this could be really fascinating for me. Yes. Yes. Anyway, so, yeah, I think 
There's some interesting phenomena associated with numbers through that. As it was, I politely emailed the fellow and I said to him, um, I'm going on holiday with my wife now <laughs> and um, you've just posted this to a public forum and um, that's regrettable. Uh, I've edited the podcast. I edited 20 minutes of the section that you're complaining about. Um, that's the way it is. And then, as expected, because he posted in a public forum, actually the fellow he complained about... Um, apologized to it and said, I'm really sorry you don't like um, the stuff that I'm doing. And uh, I thought that was actually really good because it completely diffused the situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then one of the fellow's mates decided that he wasn't having the stuff associated with the fellow losing the plot and, you know, it all um, it all went terribly wrong. Um, but it was an interesting... Because I normally, when I get these kind of emails, I will try to engage with the people that are complaining. And I think that's something that... Um, is a distinction that if you write me a negative email, I'm probably more likely to respond than a positive email, uh, which is ultimately how I got in contact with Doug Rushkoff initially anyway. Two update topics before we get into the Vegas experience. The first is associated with the comic. And my the feeling... What? The comic project, oh, what that, I'm talking yeah. about, that thing, yes. Yeah. My view is that I'm actually going to go through the discipline of outlining all the pages, which probably will extend maybe up to 300 pages worth of text and get a sense of the work associated ah. with three or four independent comics that come If you up. could do that, yeah, that would greatly simplify finding someone to do the exactly. drawings. Exactly. I think this, yeah. this, in fact, unifies my thinking associated yeah. with the project considerably better. So I'm going to You outlay, need to do the work. <laughs> I'm going to outlay probably uh, six to eight weeks to actually do that outline with the view yeah. that this also helps me get to a point oh, where yeah. we have a house and a variety of other things will kind of fall into place through this period of time. Well, also, but, but, but my, that's a great idea. I mean, that, that puts you completely in control. Completely exactly. responsible, yeah. and uh, you, yeah, it's perfect, and and it'll be your baby. And if if um, Kickstarter crashes and burns through this period of time, I'm oh. now getting excuse emails, which I think are by far the. I would much rather hear oh. nothing from someone rather than a series of excuses as to why they haven't actually completed the <laughs> Kickstarter. And the excuse emails are getting more bizarre and elaborate. I mean, I shared oh, the one really? associated with Columbia. They're now excuse emails associated with them going to particular shows and just not having time to actually fulfill their basic obligations associated with Kickstarter. My view is that if someone has, has or if a group of people have oh. given you sixty to a hundred thousand dollars, your response Responsibility is with regards to do it, fulfilling your obligations associated with that. Yeah, well, you and I are, and, and if you, and you know, and they agree with that too. <laughs> it's just that's not going to affect their behavior because. Well, yeah, they don't agree with yeah. that. I mean, basically, the oh no, they say they do. I'm saying everybody says they do. They say, oh yes, of course, yeah. you know, and and they don't even see. Well, probably on some level they do, but yeah. you know. So yes, my view is that there's there are at least two Kickstarter alternatives that will probably come up in strength in the next yeah over the period if, of time where I go through this writing. Yeah, if Kickstarter fails and it's clear why they failed, someone will fix that and come back with something that works. It's a good idea. Um, yes. So I'm not particularly... So my view is that the comic as a topic will probably drop off within the next few uh, weeks as I actually do it in, in kind of piecemeal time. But certainly my hope is in a, a couple of Well, there's of really time. not much expense. I mean, the expense is hiring the artist, right? Yes. I mean, that's that's the big expense. But of course, at that point, you're just hiring an artist. You could maybe strike a deal for equity or something with them. 
Well, I think the difficulty associated with equity, the only thing that I could say to them is that through the period of the project, their per page rate is likely to change, and it's based on basically their work ethic more than anything. And I think that's an interesting sell. I'm also mindful, particularly once I get the sense of it in terms of multiple comic books, if I get the sense that within the first comic book a certain series of acts have occurred and the next comic book another series of acts occur and the next comic book, then I can get a sense of it as a kind of holistic product, for want of a better term, over you know multiple books with the view that each book, you know, adds a bit more. Each book has to obviously have kind of cliffhanger element. There are certain thematic Have you written these to... things or what? I mean, or Yes, you... no, I mean, it's based... These on... are all part of the, what you've already got. It's yeah. based yeah. on the 93 writing, but yeah. I have additional writing that I was originally going to put out as a sequel book, which I'm now going to roll into these comic books as well. Okay, so you've got plenty of material. Uh, without question. Yeah. In fact, yeah. the, the, okay. the material is not the point of concern. The point of concern is actually, can this thing be styled in an episodic comic book? It, yeah, book? is it going to be fun to exactly. read? Is it going to leave people wanting to buy the next one? That's right. Is it going right. to be That's something right. where That's someone can come in three comic books in and then go back and buy the previous two? I mean, there are all these kind of thematic yeah. elements that I need yeah. to do in the layout process. I also find the layout process remarkably enjoyable. I mean, it really makes me feel like, because obviously I'm not connected to the art component, it makes me feel... Oh, you are. You As a consumer, you are. Exactly. You've seen, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're connected to but, it. But I'm not as connected in terms of the creative process as no. I am with the layout process. Right, yeah. Well, it's just they're just different parts of the whole package. It all needs to be done. The, the second update I wanted to give was associated with what I described last week with this Noble Ape podcast, doing a call-in show with Noble Ape. Very successful. I had uh, Bob Mottram call in, and then also um, Andreas, um, he uses a pseudonym surname, um, which is kind of... Um, it's he uses Epsilon as his um, surname on Facebook. <laughs> and I know his name isn't Andreas Epsilon, but he's a student at um, uh, a, a Berlin, I think Berlin Institute of Physics, perhaps, or perhaps Berlin University Physics Department. Anyway, he's a student there. He does all the long-term testing for Noble Ape. And he was actually, I mean, I've talked to Bob previously, his insight was that um, he thinks of the Noble Apes as actual entities, which is why he is so fastidious in his long-term testing. And he actually has developed quite striking emotional relationships with a variety of the simulated apes that he's worked through. How many are there now? How many, I mean, are there a fixed number of apes? The simulation typically starts with about 86 apes. And then that goes through, actually, it's between 70 and 80 90 potentially it creates um, new ones each time or it has just completely a, a new stock ones. that it's so okay, you can just... you can set it up to either create the stock or um renew from previous simulations or okay. create new apps yeah. but they all are uniquely named and there are a variety of other things associated with them so there were two things that came I out i hope of this, this guy hasn't fallen in love with one of them has he so he well <laughs> he, he described the situation he's he's married with children he described the situation where he went swimming in the water with his children and he realized through his experiences what the water was like he asked me a series of questions associated with the apes' experiences of water and was the apes' experience ah. of water similar to his experience of water, um, which was really uh -huh. very insightful. Interesting question, um, yeah. So, yeah, so, and Bob, um, we were talking about the kind of anatomy of the apes and he has since written, he, he, he believes, and I agree with him wholeheartedly, that once you have the simulation of the anatomy, you have visual elements that go with it, particularly associated with digestion and circulation. So he's working now on a graphical representation of the circulation, which gives the ape's physical form. Now, I am um, connecting her to his code so I can get a, some kind of aesthetic influence on what he generates in the slide. Um, 
But it is a very interesting process that once you have a simulation of the kind of internal workings of the noble ape, you very quickly get a visual simulation of the apes, which then move back into the kind of broader simulation. So that was an interesting discussion in and of itself. But I think Mm -hmm. I will be recording these on a kind of monthly basis with the view that I had a couple of apologies. Um, uh, Mike uh, down in L.A. who does the Simpsons stuff. Uh, and uh, um, another user whose name escapes me now, both sent their apologies associated with participating. But my view is that if I do this on a monthly basis and we get additional input, we'll get a lot of interesting insights. And certainly just in terms of the motivation of software, which ultimately is what Noble Ape is about on some level as well, um, yeah, certainly the initial discussion has motivated both Bob and I to, to develop various things. Um, and I think this is a, probably a really good format for a kind of continued discussion uh, for Noble Ape. Um, so that was the update associated with that. Hmm. Um, now, Las Vegas. <laughs> so, as we've discussed previously on occasion, my view associated with this existence thing is that I'm just a monkey in a simulation, uh, returning to Nobelab on some level. My experience with Vegas was very interesting, because firstly, my wife and I both noted that we'd never actually experienced Vegas as a tourist would experience Vegas. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. And when we, we stayed on the Strip, we stayed at the Bellagio, and we realised that this was actually a futurism experience, quite strikingly, because in the evening we would just turn the lights off of our hotel room and look out onto, um, we weren't looking out onto the Strip, <laughs> we were looking out onto um, two large towers that were illuminated and all this kind of stuff. It was a very, the evenings in and of themselves prom- prompted a some interesting conversations, actually. Wow. Very much in this kind of futurist, almost like, um, you know, Neo-Tokyo kind of uh, cyberpunk-esque, you know, looking <laughs> out over people who were living in kind of tiny apartment existences, but at the same point had an immediate effect on us because of their lighting, you know, whether they were watching television, with the, obviously, the sparkling sprawl of Las Vegas out there as well. The thing that struck both of us was that one of the buildings that we focused on, which was across the uh, freeway from our hotel, appeared much larger in night than it did in light. At night time, it appeared to take up a vast quantity of our view yeah. But in the daytime, it was actually quite <laughs> muted. It was one of these strange experiences yeah. where we, you know, we, I mean, fr- from Good a design. <laughs> physics perspective, I was yeah. looking at it very str- strongly in that light. But obviously there were more practical elements to our trip to Las Vegas as well. The first part was to go back and see our house. And this was really, for both of us, I mean, for me, it was slightly more emotional than it was for my wife. But for me, I got a keen sense that someone who, it's, a family lives there. They have two twin sons. Um, the husband works at one of the local casinos, but he also does things like he builds model planes. He has turned our library into basically a library. Oh, you met, you oh, went yes. into the house and met the people. Well, and, so, yeah. Initially, we were supposed to do it through the agents, but the agents completely lost the plot, um, which took about 15 minutes worth of calls to them to try and work out what was going on. And then they just said, the tenants are inside, you can go meet the tenants. So we went inside, um, and it was just wonderful. I mean, we got a sense that these were people who were living their life. They'd done various additions to the place. They'd changed the letterbox. Um, the fellow had installed some hanging lights in the garage because he was working on a mm, car. He's making it his home. Exactly. Yeah. And his wife was as well. And clearly they put up stickers for the children and all this kind of stuff. It just made me feel yeah. an immense sense of peace. Yeah. These people were living a life in our well, prior space quite comfortably. 
Well, the part of it that they're showing you. Mm, so, listen, you never know. I mean, you just you can live in your little fantasy about how wonderful life is for people, and I have no way of knowing. I I know that my life has been greatly misinterpreted by people who looked at me and when I was living with well some periods anyway and they had no clue what was going on between us you so know? well okay Let, let's in terms of what i saw and in terms of the questions i asked and the responses yeah. that i received the garden had not been tended to at all i mean basically everything mm-hmm. was grown up high and that to me and he the husband apologized and he said you know he hadn't had time, <laughs> he to, work he hadn't had time to work on the gun i said look that's fine we're not i mean basically it was also it wasn't just about us meeting them it was about them meeting us and realizing that we were relatively we didn't our burden of care was not of you know an obsessive nitpicking landlord that was looking at everything yeah. that they had done to the house. In fact, the things that they had changed about the house were more positive to us because it indicated that they were going to firstly stay there longer, but also that they were. Although you oh, may wait, argue oh, wait a minute. Okay, I happily okay, there. I, you didn't sell the house. Your rent. I was under the impression you had sold the house, and you went. I don't know where I got that idea. These are tenants, These not are tenants. owners. Yes. Okay. All right, and they're spending their money on your property. Yep. <laughs> what a deal. <laughs> that's I think, great. I think yeah, that's, that's the kind of tenant you want, man. Exactly. Yeah, no, I don't think we would have a relationship with people that have purchased the property from us. Yeah, well, that was, I was a little, I was, I was trying to figure out why the hell would you go back and, you know, pine about the house you used to own? <laughs> because we still own the house. Yeah. Um, okay. I, now, like I say, I was, uh, I missed that part. No. Apparently. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, so the, the thing that struck us, however, was how I mean, my wife more than me, but it, st- it struck us that Vegas was not an experience that we had any reason to return to. Yeah. I had perhaps somewhat romantically looked at certain aspects of our life in Vegas. But the experience of returning there and actually understanding, firstly, everything had moved on. 18 months, returning to this narrative of being a monkey in a simulation. I had stepped out of the simulation for 18 months and then returned to the simulation. (laughs) It's not the same simulation anymore. It's not. So in terms of the things that we did, um, most of the stores that I was interested in seeing, most of the bookstores and things like this, had closed. I went to one bookstore where I actually had a conversation with the owner and she threw in a free model rail magazine that I noted I had seen two years ago. She was in the process basically of closing up the secondhand bookstore. My view is that the economy is really, really, although on the strip itself, mainly international tourists, mainly Brits, Australians, Europeans, very few Americans. But if if Vegas is the barometer of the U S economy, things are still very, very rough, both on the strip in terms of Americans being there, but also off the strip. Um, so yes, um, I sense that even the things that I remember in a positive light were really no longer there. And, you know, one place um, that I did go into was, um, you know, very much on the kind of downward slide. My wife and I went to uh, two meals with former co-workers. Uh, Not a majority of the people who turned up, but a good number of the people who I worked with and knew have lost their jobs. Um, And... It's a very difficult thing to actually return to a place, particularly when you've been, at least by appearances' sake, 
relatively successful in the past 18 months to people who have lost their jobs. Yeah. And some of them yeah. have lost multiple jobs since I yeah. saw them. Yeah. Um, and the thing that struck me through that was that um, there were kind of reoccurring themes. There were things that I had forgotten about. I mean, the first group of folks was from the last job I had in Vegas, um, of which the manager who was, you know, a, a very curious character was fired, but also basically got himself fired. And that happened about 10 months after I left. But through that whole period, there were a series of kind of traumatic restructures and the majority of the people who'd lost their jobs had not been in the team that I was managed under this fellow, but had been in other teams that had gone through a series of, you know, similar restructurings. And the thing that struck me through that was a kind of familiarity associated with the kind of problems that they were seeing, because ultimately the fact that I met with two groups of people was because I had two jobs when the companies I worked for in Vegas folded um, while I was in Australia um, in 2009. So I already had a sense of the volatility, but to see it in people's faces and particularly to see how people had aged. For example, my co-worker and friend who I referred to previously, who was part of the Berkeley Sleep Study, had lost his job. Um, and this was, I think, the second time he's lost his job in, you know, in recent times. And he was talking about, you know, a variety of things he could do. Um, a number of people who actually changed their professions. They've moved out of software engineering. Um, but, yeah, it was an interesting experience. Wow. My wife hadn't met, she'd met some of them, but not all of them. And it was interested hear, it, interesting hearing her um, account of the circumstances as well. Yeah. Um, one friend who I referred to actually early on in our discussions because I talked to, I spent a lot of time with him. He's a, both a friend and a co-worker. Uh, we went out to dinner with again. He came to the first lunch and then because we didn't have time to talk, he came to a dinner that we just arranged to have with him and his girlfriend. And his narrative is very strongly associated with his relationship with his son. He was divorced, actually, through the period of time of our early recordings. And I refer to him through that period of time um, in our recordings. But he is very much the view that he can't move outside Las Vegas because he'll, you know, he'll either lose custody or what have you with his son. Mm. And it struck me through that that this was a constant narrative that actually really annoyed me. Because the circumstances that he's talking about, particularly associated with schools and things like that, I mean, none of the schools in Vegas are particularly good. One of my former managers, who's now um, back basically looking for work, um, moved to get to a slightly better school in Las Vegas. But you really, you know, I mean, it's the second to lowest in the nation associated with schools and education. Um, I'm not sure how these things are rated, but I mean, certainly yeah. the options here are considerably better. But the thing that irritates me is that this fellow was using his son as an excuse to a wide variety of other things. Whereas, mm -hmm. I mean, strongly, my parents never used any of their children as an excuse to move internationally or take different jobs. And oh, things why like should that. they? Exactly. Oh, no. yeah. I mean, the whole notion, because it becomes almost, it's a perverse thing after a period of time, because... At but to stage. sacrifice yourself for your children yeah. is the worst thing you could do. Because yeah. you then develop resentment. To yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, of course. So um, we, we bid our ways politely. I said, you know, next time you're in this part of the world, stop by. I can give you a, a free tour of Netflix, which is the, the open invitation, actually, to anyone who contacts me. <laughs> um, but the thing that struck me through this period of meeting these people again 
was it was very much like a, a noble ape that had been extracted from a simulation and re-injected 18 months later. Um, <laughs> and more strongly for my wife and me, as I've noted, a very strong sense that, um, yeah, even returning to Vegas as a There's tourist... There's nothing there for you The anymore. funny thing is, even... So, as noted in the last recording, one of the things I was looking forward to doing was getting some uh, fine Bangladeshi cloth at, um, at Walmart. And I went into the Walmart and bought... Uh, three shirts and four pairs of pants, as I had planned on doing. Even the woman in the Walmart couldn't believe that we were coming to Vegas on holiday. I mean, everyone we talked to, including my former co-workers, everyone we had any interaction with, said quite clearly, why are you in Vegas for a holiday? Yeah. Uh, Well, meaning... What going to the strip? I mean, no meaning just coming to Vegas. Well, but there'd no be no. Well, that's right. There'd be no reason to go to Las Vegas unless you knew somebody you were visiting or you were going to gamble. Why the hell would anybody go to Las Vegas? This (laughs) struck me as really striking because I guess the sense is that um, their experience there was so depressed. Yeah, you know that this was a abhorrent thing to them. But yeah, it was. I mean, to be truthful, I mean, aside from a kind of progressive allergy reaction that both my wife and I had to the constant air conditioning, um, it, it was a genuinely relaxing holiday on a number of levels. I mean, it made me realize... Well, if you're staying at the Bellagio, I can imagine it was. It, it made me realize <laughs> that the tightness that I had inside my chest associated with kind of... And as soon as I stepped mm-hmm. off the plane arriving back here, yeah. things had blown up with work and... Well, but you, need, you, you know how to control that, don't you? Truly. Um, yeah. Okay. I mean, it only takes some. That's easily controllable with a little bit of mindfulness meditation or something like that. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. Just, it's just finding the time for the mindfulness. Well, no, you, well, it's not finding; it's making the time. Certainly, I'm, I'm <laughs> sorry. But even even with all these things that I am mindful of, the distinction between being on holiday and at work was well and truly noted, and I think it's something that. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll need to explore through continued. Uh... Well, no, I, you're again. Your experience of work probably is these ideas aren't. See, for me, work is something I do and then leave. I never give it a thought at home. You know, two days a week I go in and build papers and then I leave, and that's the end of it. But I imagine what you're doing is stuff that is more abstract and and you know and occupies your your time sort of all the time, doesn't it? I work for an always-on company, which is yeah. why I'm really interested in talking to Douglas Rushkov in a non-abstract sense about what he's talking about. Yeah. Because my view is that there's nothing abstract. And this is also why I'm... I mean, this is part of what I do what I do, but or why I do what I do. But when you're post-singular, when you have this view of machine intelligence and the pervasive nature of machine intelligence versus human intelligence, you... You know, you... you exist in an always-on society anyway. And when you're actually part of the cogs, you're always on. And it's something which... Well, it I doesn't think, have to be that way. I mean, it is. That's the way they've structured it. But you could still have people working uh, shifts. You, you can. The problem with people working shifts is that um, it, in fact, is more uh, abrasive than... So, for, for well, example... it requires teamwork, and it requires a whole different management structure. But, I mean, I don't see... There's nothing inherently wrong with that idea, but... I think it's actually... I've worked in those kind of environments. In fact, my prior... A couple of prior jobs, in fact, three prior jobs, have been in those kind of environments, and they are... 
you spend it's the transitional points that take more time so for example if you have folks that are working in india um and you come in in the morning or oh, you, yeah, you know, yeah, folks working yeah. in australia then you have the time wasted associated with the overlapping time and dealing with their the yeah. pickup time is actually more time consuming oh, yeah i can imagine they're just about as stupidly arranged as possible. Yeah. I mean, in, 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 this yeah. was actually a point of humor, although it resulted in someone's death. I mean, but, but the last company I worked for in Las Vegas, which a few of these people still work for, attempted to force American employees to work Indian hours. And this actually resulted through a international flight and some sickness yeah. in a fellow dying. Yeah. Because basically he was he'd been working for three months under these conditions. Then they flew him to India, and his immune system wasn't ready for that. And in the process of him flying black back, he had a blood clot that went up into his brain and killed him. My view is that if he hadn't been working Indian hours, amongst other things, well, there would probably be a variety of things that could have sold him. Yeah, we're Indian probably better off without him. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think his children think that. But anyway, oh, screw him. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to be offensive, I mean, yeah. I. <laughs> anyway, so yes, it does. It does. Yeah, you're right. I mean, basically, what we should do is aim for uh, a post singular. I don't think. I don't think we can. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's really any other. So there is no systemic solution. There's no new government or new savior going to save our ass. We have to fucking wake up. And if we don't, we're just gonna. It's just gonna be more of the same shit and worse that we've been experiencing. I mean, it looks like that to me. I don't know. I mean, is that being alarmist? <laughs> so I've had to come to the kind of moral decision that by embracing for a small period of time, at least, the insanity, with the view that I am what I can make through this period of time enables me to remove myself from the insanity in the future, is a reasonable justification at this time. Well, actually, I don't think you even need a justification. Well, I mean, nobody knows really what the fuck is going on here. Your bet is as good as mine. <laughs> you but know? I know what is going well, except as a no, monkey you in got a simulation. Your story. No, no, yeah. as a monkey. No, no, no. Look, as a monkey in a simulation, particularly a monkey in a simulation that has both internal and external effects, yeah. I should be, in some regard, particularly when I'm being frank and honest, listen to. To a certain extent, I mean, at least humour me in this light, Heron, mm-hmm. um, with the view that um, certainly I've spent considerable time, as you have, reflecting on these kind of things in some, um, you know, individual yeah. and existential sense. Okay. So, uh, I guess, yeah, anyway, I'd, I'd be really interested, and I don't know whether he'll actually play ball, Douglas Rushkoff, that is, yeah. associated with this kind of discussion, because this kind of stuff that he's talked on so far, and this is with uh, Kevin O'Connor, a.k.a. KMO, was pretty softball. I mean, he does things like he appears on, you know, the Comedy Central news programs and these kind of things as a talking head associated with this kind of stuff. I don't know whether he's willing to pay ball, but I will send him an email and see well, if he's interested in setting up a discussion. If nothing and more, the discussion is on... The discussion on is on um, whether... Well, there are a series of elements here, but whether the always-on society is symptomatic of something that is... A contemporary, is malpropity a word? Um, a contemporary, a problem, or whether it's a symptomatic of basically, as you describe it, some continuation 
into well your body i mean there may be rhythms i mean but your body is on 24 hours a day you know it's always on it's always got to be functioning but it does go through you know cycles and um I don't think that I don't see why you know this is related to something else that I've been thinking about the the future of politics not polit- politics isn't the right word but the old idea of city states I think is is really the natural unit we need to be thinking about you know like the Los Angeles area or whatever you know or various other places that ultimately if well, one way of looking at it, anyways, if it condenses and gets, you know, you'll end up with these city-states that are pretty independent of other city-states. There probably has to be a an organization of city-states, but within each city-state, we'd be free to create any kind of structure we want. So, my view, particularly as we're talking about LA, is that it would probably be down to the level of, like, Santa Monica, Glendale... Probably even Burbank is too big. I mean, I think there are certain... Within within LA, it would be city-states of that level. It wouldn't be greater Los Angeles, because basically... No, I, no I'm, that's what I mean. I mean, but, it, well, again, I'm looking more at the end product than how we're going to get there. <laughs> how we're going to get there is problematic at best. But I, I see basically... Well, again, I kind of like Paolo Soleri's ideas about really dense... Uh, super structures where lots of people live and create stuff and then outside that is the natural environment. So basically we'd create a couple of these living pods in various places around, but they'd all be part of the greater Los Angeles uh, municipality. And and they could pretty much make up their own rules. Yeah, that's already been illustrated. I can't recall. I think it was one of your earlier journals, one of the two that I put out at least. Yeah. There's some Quite um, quite nice illustrations of exactly that phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, and and I think again that's so far removed than the kind of world we live in now that it, it's hard to imagine how we're going to get there. Except that it already is happening. Uh, in the 1950s, the slums were next to the freeways. They built the freeways in the cheapest parts of town. Now, next to the freeway is the most expensive property there is. <laughs> so, you know, we're already condensing. We're drawing into the lines of communication, which are absolutely essential to a modern civilization. So everything has to be within a couple hundred yards, basically, of a main artery. Mm. And when when you have something like that, it, you you get orders of magnitude of efficiency. We would, you know, it makes supplying us with the stuff we need to live so much easier. <laughs> I guess my view is that, um, but this is also associated with my own kind of anti-car, anti-road narrative. That the freeway system has... Oh, but there won't be freeways. It won't be yeah. cars. It'll be yeah. mass transit. It'll be bu- not buses, some sort of tram or fl- levitating vehicle or something More with right. a Starbucks on it. Yes. A mo- yeah, you know, yeah, it'll be a social event, actually. But any place worth going will be on its route. Which kind of already exists in the UK to a certain extent in yeah. Europe. I mean, yeah. they've, and it's Japan happened. and, yes. Yeah. I mean, a it's number happened. of... A number of um, countries have already developed these. Yeah, uh, yeah we're way behind here. <laughs> but on the other hand, maybe that gives us an advantage because we can do it even – well, who knows? But I, I, I don't – that makes sense to me. I mean, if we're going to live – if we're going to create paradise, I mean, basically, we don't need – we need to eliminate work. This full employment bullshit is just 100% backwards. 
we, we should be striving to zero employment. And that requires efficiency. The problem is that efficiency is, I mean, if you look at linguistic manipulation, efficiency is one of the most curiously manipulated words. Well, obviously, we'll have to define that carefully <laughs> so well, that it's yes, reasonable. I mean, well, I mean, for instance, let me give you an example. How many different kinds of alarm clocks can you buy? How many factories have people working in them making different kinds of alarm clocks in different styles and different colors? And I think the, you know, I think the alarm clock market has pretty well – I mean, this is the whole notion of what the, the cell well, phone just, has eliminated the camera. Yeah, yeah no, you're right. This has changed. The alarm sure. clock – you're right. This stuff has changed a lot. But I mean, how, how, get furniture. How about chairs? Dining room furniture. Mm. How many different kinds? How many different kinds of refrigerators? How many different kinds of stoves and dryers and hammers? And you know, if do we really need all this variety? Does my individuality really depend on having forty-five different kinds of chairs I can sit in? Or 145 instead of maybe 10? I think even in furniture, and I look at particularly the bookshelves and the furniture that I have in front of me, this is economics more than anything. I mean, the fact that I'm, you know, on a plastic folding table that we've, you know, moved around, which is of exactly the same model that you'd buy in any Home Depot or these kind of things. I mean, you're right in terms of luxury furniture, that may be the case, but I think within the apartments of the US, probably a majority of people have the same kind of cheap furniture that we have acquired because it is relatively generic. I'm looking around actually to try and see, I mean, we have, in terms of furniture, but this is also, <laughs> my in-laws have this thing that they say to us now that says that as as I'm earning good money, the poor will come and attack us at some stage. This is the kind of reverse <laughs> libertarian viewpoint. And the point that I make to my wife, which she chuckles on, is that we disguise ourselves very well. Um, in terms of, <laughs> right. Words are undercover here. Do, 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 yeah. not, you know, do not rob us. We have the same crap that you have, yeah, only yeah. less so. So on my view is that actually, perhaps in some sense, we are used to occasionally when we lived in Las Vegas go into these furniture stores. And you're right. I mean, when you go into a specific furniture store, you're confronted with you know tens of different kinds of chairs but practically i think economically particularly because of the utilitarian purpose i mean i'm sitting on a broken plastic chair currently and i mean i think that's the nature of, and certainly when i look at youtube videos maybe it's the nature of youtube video culture the people who are recording youtube videos are living in similar circumstances to me in terms of you know plastic yeah, not many of furniture. us have louis the 14th thrones <laughs> but my view is that economically perhaps that is and i mean all our bookshelves much my wife's frustration are the same kind of assemble, you know, poorly yeah, constructed. Yeah, right, they're great. They're cheap, they're sturdy, they work. <laughs> well, they're not necessarily sturdy, but they do work. I mean, they do have functional utility. So well, the ones is, I've got are great, man. I love them. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Maybe I have more heavy books. But um, I guess my view is that even within these parameters, the what you see, I mean, this is like cars. I mean, you know, you can That's see... That's another great example. Wide yeah. But I think, practically, a majority of people who are of particular financial means, which is a vast quantity of the, um, you know, the US population at least, are very much limited in what they can do economically, which ultimately means that there are probably, and, you know, this is Ford Motor Company, the utilitarian, cheaply made cars are the ones that actually people buy. You're right. But the they don't... Is, yeah, like I said, what I'm getting at, instead of there being... 
80 different models. I don't know. How, how many models of cars are available in the world? I mean, it's probably more than eight. It's probably several hundred, Typically, I would each manufacturer of cars, even in the luxury versions, will have between five and eight models. Yeah, have. okay. But, I mean, of all the companies in all the world, I'm just trying – I don't know. But there must be wildly – you know, from – Two or three million dollar Lamborghinis, <laughs> you know, to five thousand dollar or cheaper things. Do you have any idea how many total different cars are available? I would say it would probably be in the orders because also you have hundreds. regional cars. Yeah, hundreds, yeah. Yeah. hundreds. Anyway, anyway, what I'm thinking is, what it, couldn't you manufacture? One or two cars at like five different price ranges that are the absolutely best thing you could possibly make so for that kind of resource. Within countries like Malaysia and India, they do exactly that. I mean, in Malaysia, when I was there at least, there was the Proton Company that made cars. I mean, in Australia, normally, although there are two companies, there was a local primary, well, both Ford and General Motors, although it was called Holden in Australia, had different car lines, but typically there were two car companies that you could buy from within that range. I mean, some people occasionally bought uh, other cars, I mean, Toyota and these kind of things. But mm. I think in, typically when you look at countries like India and Malaysia and even, um, you know, areas in the uh, former Soviet republics, these kind of things, they will have a regional car company, maybe state-owned, maybe loosely connected with the state, that will make cheap vehicles or certainly economic vehicles where... You know, others that could afford, you know, Mercedes or Lamborghinis or what have you will buy them. But generally, the population will drive around quite comfortably in a variety yeah. of different versions of this. Yeah, I think I'm just thinking just... as a whole or- – again, I'm just looking at the whole organization of the planet and how we use our resources. Mm-hmm. I can imagine – uh, just applying this principle across the board, that's all. As I'm saying. You know where it's extremely inefficient, and this in large part is much to my shame being connected with this industry, this is with regards to computers. I mean, if you look at something that is um, constantly in need of recycling, in terms of constantly a three-year-old computer, a five-year-old oh, yeah. computer... You, you know this. I mean, you're part yeah, of yeah, the it's useless. Scheme. You give them away. So yeah. my view is that the kind of – it's funny that in, in technology, this is where this is most extreme, particularly associated with the kind of environmental degradation associated with the production of a computer or an iPad or these kind of things. And I think um, you're right. Cars do have a relatively large footprint, but we probably shouldn't forget where a car may have a lifetime of – 10 or 15 years, or if used efficiently upwards to 20 years, a computer, you would have gone through maybe four computers. But it's not because they fall apart, it's because they get outdated by technology, which not is because they don't function anymore. Well, except if you look at operating systems, if you look at internet you know, well, browsing, yeah. if you look at the technology yeah. that connects to it, they do very well. Well, you're right, well, they're they, not dropping you know, off. But again, this is not a hardware problem. It's a, it's a different kind of the problem with a car is that after 20 years, you've replaced everything and you know it's getting tired. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, it's an interesting the, – the whole notion of uh, planned and forced obsolescence yeah. is an interesting problem. Well, there should be no planned obsolescence. That's absurd. Everything ought to be made to last as long as possible. That should be standard, I would think. So, and again, that's the whole point. Then you don't need 87 different kinds. If you really put the the effort into into manufacturing the best goddamn 
you know, high stool that you can manufacture, maybe you can make five or six different ones, <laughs> you know. And if anybody wants anything else, of course, they can always make their own goddamn high chair. I think that's actually by far the more interesting point, particularly associated with, well, cars, with um, computers, with everything, with furniture. Yeah. yeah. I think actually, and this returns to our whole notion of, is this an abstract survivalist concept? No. I've had times in my life where... It, in order to have bookshelves, I've had to make them myself. Yeah. And now we've got 3D printers, you know, and that, that technology has just barely begun. But over the next decade, what the hell is that going to do? That's going to liberate all sorts of new fun things for us to play with. Mm. Oh, man. And they're printing tissues now. That's the latest thing I read this week. So They've been printing tissues for... Um well, they've been yeah. Apparently, there was some new breakthrough or yeah. something. They've uh, been they, printing they, tissues for at least three years. I mean, yeah. the, but what they did, I mean, this is the whole ear that grew on the back of a mouse was that yeah. they printed the originally they printed like the substrate for the tissue to grow, yeah. and now they're actually printing the tissue. <laughs> well, it's just an amazing world we're walking, uh, creating here. Wow. Yeah. And here. Anyway, I think we've covered everything. Really? You've, oh, you've, thrown some, you've thrown some things out there. I'm obviously going to... You've, you've sent me some uh, quite detailed homework, which I will look at completely. Well, it's just basically, yeah, if, we're gonna, if you're going to accuse me of saying something, I want to see it. <laughs> you know? Fair enough. And yes, I think that's probably going to be the... Uh, the next few uh, recordings, with the hope that I'll also have some interesting stuff. Well, to throw yeah, in we there as well. yeah, we certainly don't want this to dominate what we're doing. I see this as a great service that you're doing me. I think you know, the thing that interests me, Heron, is that your, in large part, your experience is in no way unique. And I think the thing that strikes me through seeing it written down is that some of this. For whatever reason, I just assume implicitly, maybe because of my relatively um, nihilistic philosophical uh, upbringing, or whether it's interesting actually because to see you work through these things indicates that there was something there prior to this working, which in and of itself is interesting to me too. One of the reasons that I wanted to talk about racism specifically is because... um, it seems that you are actually firstly resentful of some aspect of your prior life, but also deeply trying to work through, as you are early on in the text with smoking, for example, how you break the mould that gets you into the position for reaching for a cigarette to start off with. And I think that's a very interesting process to see written down. So that is certainly something we're going to return to. Yeah. The yeah. main concern that I have associated with formalising it, although I will, is that it over a passage of 600 pages, which is typically the length that we'll be looking at, there may be uh, 15 pages spread pretty evenly throughout. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, page yeah, turning yeah, quickly yeah. is going to be a... Yeah, well, yeah, that's a that's a big job. You're right. That's That requires a lot of attention and diligence uh, to do that. And again, I can talk about any subject in the abstract, but not about how I used to feel about it. I can talk about how I feel about it now. Yes. You know, so I have no problem. Like I say, so if you find a subject you want to talk about, I, I have no problem with it, but just don't bring up anything from the journal about it. Well, you can that too, I guess. You're asking but, me to do that associated with page numbers. Well, no, as I'm saying, 
yeah, if we're going to talk about the specifics, <laughs> yes, I'm going to need the page numbers. Yes. But I'm saying I'm also open to just talking about any of these ideas without reference to anything. Yes, which was, I guess, my hope because, yeah, returning back to the page number idea, why don't we try a week See, then the if page we're gonna numbers? Talk, yeah, what I'm saying is if, if we're not going to use page numbers, then, then this has nothing to do with a journal except that the journal is where you got an idea to talk about something. In but you can't hold up anything that I said back then unless, unless you can tell me exactly what I said back then. Otherwise, you're just giving me your summary of your interpretation of what, what you read. Without question. So, um, so that's, the, that's the way, like I say, if you want to talk about any of these ideas about how I feel about them now, and, and, and we could go, you could bro- broach the past too, but like I say, to do that with any kind of integrity, I, I'm going to need to see what it is you're actually interpreting. Because I may have an entirely different interpretation of what what you've come to. Certainly. So why don't we try it an experiment next week with page numbers, with talking about things both abstractly and with reference to page okay, numbers. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we'll see how that turns out. And if that yeah. doesn't work as a format, then we'll return to talking about these things in abstract. Well, we'll yeah, we'll do anything we want to do. <laughs> it works for me. Very good, Harry. Well, it's been a pleasure as always. And, um, yeah, I'll get you the... Uh, page numbers and references relatively shortly. And there's really no hurry. I mean, I don't, I don't really need that. If you want to give it to me, that'd be great. But, uh, you know, as long as, as they're available and when we're talking, I can make the reference and see what I, what I actually wrote there, then uh, I've got no problem. I don't need any pre, preheating. I think the, <laughs> it's also subject to basically my week. So it's better for me yeah. to do it over a weekend or on a yeah. Friday night than it is thinking about it Thursday evening or even worse Friday. Yeah, no, I got it. You do what you want to well, you like I say you do what the hell you want to do. <laughs> you know, do it, do it and if you send it to me great and if you don't send it to me, I don't really care. Very good, Herod. We also have a um a running um to be continued associated with you using Noble Ape and us working through that. And I think yeah. what I'm actually going to do is probably postpone that as well for me to get Bob Mottram's new stuff connected so you can actually visually see the stuff that he's graphing and looking okay. through. Um, yeah. So that will probably be in a probably two, three-week time frame, okay. um, given given what I'm looking at. Currently. And then you'll give me a tutorial on this exactly. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, what okay. my plan was actually to record a YouTube um, tutorial for about, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, just giving you the basics. Oh, okay. And All then right. if you can work through that and then you it. And then we could it. talk. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. All right. That'll work great. Well, it's been a pleasure as always, Heron. You have a great evening. Okay, good night. See ya.